Well, I love getting to teach here. Absolutely. This is important to me. No place like this. You know, I'm the teaching pastor. I'm more like the teaching ambassador, and I love to tell people about Northview. It's a, it's a really special place where truth is honored and truth is taught, and um, that's pretty important. You know, um, I'm a lot like CJ. He has a photographic memory. And I, uh, any word I read is indelibly uh, imprinted on my brain in uh, invisible ink. But it's kind of the same thing. It's really, it's close. Uh, that's why I use a bit of notes here. But um, <laughs> truth isn't exactly honored in our screen-saturated world in which we live. I mean, it is uh, certainly disregarded, many times disbelieved, deluded, and certainly disputed. It was not that way uh, not too long ago. There was a little Tim, he was 11 years old, and he was wondering, what in the world did my parents ever do before the internet and social media and all the games that you can play? He just couldn't figure it out. And neither could any of his 17 brothers and sisters. They just <laughs> escaped them. What did parents do? Well, you know, it wouldn't hurt if we got back to a little more of that, would it? Um, I know uh, confession is good for the soul, and um, I confess that I've spent a little too much time on game pigeon and uh, a little bit of blackjack and all sorts of other things, and so I confess that that's a bit of a problem there. I uh, also uh, want you to know that last week I had to make a big confession to Misty. Uh, I told her I had uh, lied on our taxes, and uh, because, well, I just told her there was, a, in the IRS form, there's a place where you it says, head of household, and I put my name there. And I just, you know, I told her, I, sorry. I, uh, anyway, our, our marriage is more like a partnership, though. You know, we're more like peers because when we got married, she said, um, okay, you make all the major decisions, and I'll make all the minor decisions. Oh, man, this is great. And, you know, so interesting, I've never had to make one major decision. It's just worked out perfect for us. You might want to try it. Well, um, we are in this great series on road tripping. So I've been thinking about this. I turned my notes in literally six weeks ago. It's never been done before. And uh, I've been thinking about it. And Misty and I, we did a marriage conference for some folks up in uh, Park Cities, Utah. Greatest uh, speaking experience of my life. People said to me, nice job. They said to her, where have you been? I mean, it was just incredible. Well, last week I was without her. I was doing a, um, a marriage conference in Washington, D.C. And part of what I tell people is get a Ph.D. in your spouse. Uh, learn everything you can. So I had this idea, thinking about road tripping. And so I invited her on a road trip back to Muncie, where she spent the first 18 years of her life. And I want to tell you about it. So we bought a brand-new 1996 camper. <laughs> uh, it, I'm telling you, it, this thing is, well, she looked at about 200 before she said, this is our uh, camper van, and it's perfect. So we took that to Muncie with bicycles on the back, and we, we pulled up. This is where she was raised. Granny lived over here. They would talk window to window there, and over here, there was a grapevine, and I got to kind of give her the biggest hug next to that grapevine, and it just was like 
getting into her world. These are the steps where she took a picture, or they took a picture of her on her first day uh, of kindergarten. And just to experience that, I mean, I've been going to Muncie for 20 years with her, never experienced this. So got to see that. And then we were riding bikes all over the place. And uh, there was this one little place she showed me where uh, she was six years old, schoolyard was way down there, and her gloves got wet, and she was cold and crying and upset. And, you know, it just, when you hear something like that about somebody you love, you just, you want to hug them and nurture them and be there for that little six-year-old girl. And that, that happened. So I'm just saying, you know, maybe there's a road trip uh, in, ahead. So then we, uh, you know, we were riding bikes of the neighborhood like she used to ride bikes. This is where she learned to swim when she was about five. They had free swimming lessons, and I got to see the pool. It just, it was so fantastic. And then we went over, well, okay, this, this, this is, this I'll is tell you about Bethel. this. This is the street we used to have to cross. With all this. At six, she crossed this street to get to, to the get Pizza King. Why were you going there? Okay, here we go. Why were you going? going She's reenacting the way she ran at age six. We're good. To dodge the traffic. <laughs> and how were you? How old were you? Huh? When did it start? How old were you? I was like five and six years old. There you go. Dodging the traffic. Stack of quarters. Huh. That we had to go through and discern which years they were because the machine would only take certain years. You couldn't have like 72 or 76. It had to be 75. And so That's awesome. 1970s. So she was running across that thoroughfare to buy cigarettes for her uncles with these quarters that didn't always work into the machine. And so I had heard about Pizza King. I'd never been in there. And it reminded me of my uh, dad's, you know, my dad had this great, humor, dad humor, like he'd say, hey, um, did you hear about the 12-inch uh, tall king? No. Well, he wasn't a very good king, but he made a really good ruler. That was my dad. So anyway, so I thought about that. Then here we are in the, I didn't know this, you ding-a-ling uh, to ring the king. And so we did that, got to experience that. And then this was so amazing, her first job in the library. Now, she writes books that go in the library. I just think that's so cool. And then she was part of Young Life. And in this room, uh, she would pass out study Bibles. And the leader said, this is what it's all about, getting God's Word into the hands of these young girls. Now she's developing study Bibles. She is part of uh, every woman's Bible that comes out in 23. And we've got a couple of Bibles coming out this year. So that was our road trip that did something for our relationship. It didn't fix everything. We, you know, we have an amazing marriage about 51% of the time. But anyway, uh, if, don't feel bad if you never thought about something like that. It took me, I teach this stuff. It took me 20 years to figure it out. But it was such a great time to experience what I'd never experienced before with her. Well, today we're going to go on a road trip. Daniel, this amazing Daniel, is going to be our travel guide and King Nebuchadnezzar is the guy that uh, is taking the trip. Our first stop is what I call Jewish devastation back in Jerusalem. Um, there was this king, not good, king of Jerusalem. And um, 
he, I mean, he was about as bad as they could get. And so when he was bad, God said, I've got to do something about this guy. And so uh, he did. He had King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon go and overtake Jerusalem. Very sad for all the Jewish people, but that's, that's what he did. And so we're going to look at what happened as a result of him taking some guys back with him to Babylon. But, you know, I was raised Southern Baptist, and I learned that when you speak, you need to do three points and a point. So here's my point. Road tripping is the name. Better hold on tight, buckle the belt, and click in, because life's an adventure when you're going with God road tripping. When life's nothing more than being a bore or nose picking, just get up and get out, choose God's route for road tripping. See, this is what I do in my spare time. Now, if you're going to go, if you're going wrong and your morals are slipping, follow Jesus, stay on his path for road tripping. There's no shame or doubt or disbelief you have to sit in because God's grace and mercy and love is what he provides for road tripping. If you want to be transformed, your stinking thinking needs switching. Fools always fail when they only rely on themselves for road tripping. So let's get started into God's word we be dipping. For the long haul, God's got the best plan for eternal road tripping. See, that's what I do. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I, I have to apologize for that. That's your point. Now, here are the three points. I'll give them to you right up front because I want to be sure that, you know, what my points are before I give the point. So here they are. First point, God gave every person here life and with it a path and a specific calling to a purpose that only you have. Second point, along the way, we run off the road, take a destructive side trip or two, get kicked to the curb, or we get stuck in traffic. It happens all the time. Third point, no matter how far off the path you go, God's calling, the calling on your life is still there. You have not blown it, and God is inviting you back on the path to fulfill the purpose that he has for your life. Now, the title of the message is Field of Dreams. Eight, uh, 1989, Kevin Costner uh, starred in the movie where they uh, were down on a, a back road cornfield transformed into a baseball diamond. And, you know, the famous uh, phrase, uh, if you build it, they will come. Well, it has nothing to do with this message, but I love the title, Field of Dreams, because our old Nebuchadnezzar is going to have a dream and he's going to end up in a field. So I just picked that. Um, anyway, my subtitle is The Delirious, meaning Acutely Disturbed, journey, and it's more ego trip uh, than anything, of King Nebuchadnezzar and his man of character, Daniel. Now, if you're going to take a journey, you need to know the destination. And so, at, on my map that I think uh, I plotted out where I wanted us to go, there are five places that I hope we can end up. It's a big challenge, but we've got a big God, and uh, if you well, just stick with me. Uh, I think we can do it. The first place is the municipality of mercy. This is where you live without condemnation because you know God is rich in mercy and forgives you when you take the detours and the rough roads. 
and follow the directions of the foolish. Foolish. Now then there's the restoration residences to live in. This is where you know that God wants to restore you to the calling. No matter how deep in the weeds you go, you haven't failed too much, you haven't gone too far. Then there's New Vision Village. We're going to stop by there where you finally see and come to believe that God still has that calling. And then finally, Commitment County, where you commit to following God's path. You may have been off of it for a long time, but you come right back and you ask God to help you. Stay on that path. And then we've got Servant City. That's the fifth one where you're so grateful for what God does in restoring you. You want to reach out and help somebody experience the same thing. So here we go. We're going to start by looking at Daniel. Daniel, well, the main character trait that Daniel had was character. This guy was so strong. You know, he was, a, he was one of four guys uh, that we're going to talk about, that Nebuchadnezzar took from Jerusalem, brought them over. They had to be good-looking, strong, smart, all this stuff. And, and so he wanted them to be able to be suave enough to serve in the king's court. So that's where we're going to start. And, and this Daniel, well, I'll go to, I'll go to the sixth chapter. It's kind of jumping way ahead. We're going to stay through one through four. But Right after the king had said, Daniel, you can run everything in my country. A lot like Joseph over uh, in Egypt. Right after that, everybody got jealous of Daniel. And it says here that they couldn't find anything to criticize or condemn him for. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. Daniel built his life on the truth of God's Word, we need to build the truth of God's Word into our lives. So Daniel's doing a great job, but these guys say, hey, Neb, he's worshiping a God other than you. And so this is when, in the sixth chapter, after making Daniel in charge of everything, throws him in a lion's den, sealed up with a stone, just like Jesus was later, and there he becomes the first successful lion tamer ever in the history. And he does it well. And when he comes out, well, once again, Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, uh, this guy's got it going on. His God is everything. But Nebuchadnezzar never, ever sticks with his commitment to God. So we're going to do our first stop there in the Jewish Jerusalem where King Joachim uh, Jehoiakim uh, was a bad king. And that's when he takes Daniel and these three guys, many guys, but three that we're going to look at, back to Babylonia. Now, or Babylon. Now, Daniel goes back there. And, um, you know, he's, everybody's doing great. But Daniel doesn't want to eat what they're giving him off the king's table. He doesn't think that's honorable. And so, um, man, that's kind of weird. And People see this, but the infamous Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go through the training. Vegetables and water is all they need. They don't need the, the probably meat that's sacrificed to idols and stuff like that. And so um, off they go. And the setup is so complete because 
they look great, they do great in their three years of training, and um, in the midst of it all, there's old King Nebuchadnezzar in bed with a bad dream. And none of his people can figure out what that dream was all about. And so the third stop is in the bedtime for chief of Babylon. So Daniel, um, well, he knows what the dream is. None of his, it says, magicians, none of his enchanters, sorcerers, or astrologers could tell Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed nor what it meant. Now, just think about that. These are your guides. It reminds me of, we had a, a psychic who, in our town who went out of business. And everybody thought, well, she should have known better. I mean, th this is the kind of thing you're dealing with. And astrologers. You know, I'll tell you the horoscope. that This is the horoscope that everyone should read if they're looking for their horoscope. It should say this. Today, you will do some really stupid stuff. Evidenced by you seeking direction from a daily horoscope written to appeal to one twelfth of the world. Good luck with that. You would do better to utilize rock, paper, scissors, or the choice of children around the world, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, for daily direction. I mean, really, how do people in their right mind, well, it's almost like you, they trust a fortune cookie better than God's word. But anyway, that's what was going on with this king. They couldn't tell him what his dream was. They came to, he, he sent somebody to kill all of those people. Da Daniel, rather than let him be killed, says, uh, give me some time here. I'll tell you about your dream. And then he says to Nebuchadnezzar, uh, your guys can't tell you this, but the God of heaven revealed the dream to me. So um, he tells him about the dream. And it's, it's, you know, not good. There's statue and it's torn down and rock comes and hits it. There's destruction and all of that kind of crummy stuff. And then he says, God's going to have a kingdom after all these fall. that's going to stand forever. And so what does he do? He makes Daniel a government official. That's what he does. But then rather than follow this God that he's so excited about, who tells him these things, our fourth stop is the ungodly declaration, the ego verse of the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. And so he's up on, um, well, he decides he's going to build a statue of himself, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide, pure gold. Man, that must have been some kind of a statue. Well, uh, every time you hear a lute or a uh, zither or a flute or a lyre, you're supposed to worship the statue of King Nebuchadnezzar. See, he just has so, he's so inconsistent. He can't keep it together. Well, he was so close to honoring God. Then he does this, and then people tell him that Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego aren't worshiping him or his statue. And so you know where that leads, the big, bad, fiery furnace. But before we get there, I want to give you a side trip. 1940, May 25th, 350,000 troops backed up against the sea, very much like the Israelites were backed up against the Red Sea. 
Hitler's troops were storming through, and for some reason he thinks, uh, you know, he needs to stop. Most people thought they'd all be dead within 24 hours. But Hitler stops his troops from moving in, and then there's a three-word message that comes out of Dunkirk. The British commander, or the commander of the Allied troops, sends three words after praying to God, God, give us a miracle like you did at the Red Sea. The three words were this, but if not. It was 1940. It was Great Britain. 80% of Great Britain's citizens were so biblically literate that they all knew what it meant and where it came from. And from those three words, they determined that the troops were in big trouble, dire need. They determined that they needed help beyond anything that could be imagined. They needed a miracle. And they determined from those three words that even if they are close to defeat, they will never, ever give in to Hitler or serve him. Three words, but if not, inspired all of these civilians to get in their little boats and their big boats and go right over there to Dunkirk, the miracle of Dunkirk. Almost 350,000 people were evacuated between uh, May 25th and June 4th. Three words. If those three words were spoken today, I think, and you didn't know the story, I think people go, yeah, well, what? what's that? But if not. But everybody, or 80% of Great Britons knew that Shadrach and Meshach were given an opportunity to save themselves or they were going to be thrown in the furnace. So hot that the people that threw them in died. So, what did they do? They say to Nebuchadnezzar, God's going to help us. He's going to protect us. He's going to save us. But if not, we will never, ever serve you or bow down to you. That's, that's, those three words were in the King James Version, and that's what everybody was reading at the time. Wouldn't it be something if everybody today was so biblically literate that something like that could really mean something to us? Um, and that miracle, oh my goodness. I mean, it just doesn't even make sense that all of those people could be evacuated simply on the inspiration of three words. Well, you know what happened. Fifth stop is the Christophany, which was Christ showing up in the Old Testament, and most people think that, that when, when Nebuchadnezzar looked in there, he saw four people, and most people think that was Christ in there with them. So what does he do? Oh, my goodness. He determines that this God that saved these guys, everybody should bow down to him. And, you know, if you don't, he's just going to rip you limb from limb, is what he said, if you don't worship their God. So you'd think. He's on the right track now. He's had such evidence of godly intervention. Well, 
The sixth stop is the dream of doom back in the bedroom of this big bad Babylonian king. And what does it say? Well, there's a tree that gets cut down, all this stuff, and here comes Daniel to tell him what it means. Essentially, it says, um, if, you, if you don't do something different, my friend, you are going to end up living in a field, eating grass like a cow. Your nails are going to look like Howard Hughes. I don't think he used that, but uh, they're like the talons of a bird. Your hair will be so long, it will be like the feathers of an eagle. And dew from heaven will cover you, and you will be as of an animal. So what does he do? Does he change because he doesn't want that? No. He's rocking along, and he's told that he has to get his act together. It's going to happen if he doesn't change, you know, in 12 months. And so does he? Absolutely not. And, you know, 12 months later, we go to our seventh stop. He's up on his roof, and he's looking out over the town. Now, God has used him to wipe out Jerusalem. God puts people like him in power, allows them to have power. But what does he say? After all this stuff, he doesn't acknowledge God. He says to everybody, hey, take a look at this. Look at the great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. Before Frank Sinatra ever sang it, he was singing, I did it my way. He should have been singing, what kind of fool am I? Because here he was. And the next day, pride, like my mom said, she spoke in King James, pride cometh before a fall. Don't let your trinity be me, myself, and I. He was so deluded. He was so full of himself. You know, there is nothing that will protect you from humiliation more than being humble and having humility as a character trait. So, eighth stop is out in the field of his dreams. He is the bird man on a crash grass diet. Daniel 4.33 says, Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. Driven from the people, ate grass, his body drenched with dew, his hair like feathers of an eagle, nails, claws of a bird. Now, doesn't that say to us, when we read James 4.10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. My wife calls that humbling down. When we don't humble down, we're so stupid to think that we've got it all together. We're so arrogant. It just, we just trip up over ourselves and our ego. So there he is. Now, what's the final stop going to be? Is it going to be uh, a slow death for this animal living out there on the grass? Is it going to be total death and destruction? No, it's not. Because God... God wants to restore us. We think he rejects us. He wants to restore us. Um, and I think next month, Misty did a 100-word devotion for every day of the year for 
the one-year Bible for women. And I did the one-year Bible for men. Doing a one-year Bible is just a great idea until about day 76. And then you're wondering what, <laughs> it's gone. I don't have anything to say. Anyway, so I, in February, I look inside of what I'm going to write about that day. Over here in the Old Testament is Aaron worshiping a golden calf. And over here in the New Testament on the same day, you read that passage, it's Peter. And he's denying he ever knew Jesus. Now, if you've ever made a bad hire, God knows what that's like. You just can't get much worse than worshiping a golden calf or saying, I never met Jesus. So what's their story? Did God take the calling of high priest away? Did God say to Peter, man, if you can't even admit you know me, how can I have you, you know, be such a, a strong uh, foundation for the church? How can I do that? I can't. No. God restored them. Just like God wants to restore every person here. That's what he does. And when it comes to King Nebuchadnezzar, that's exactly what he did. After all was said and done, King Nebuchadnezzar goes through seven seasons and finally realizes who God is, praises him, and it says that everything he had was restored back to him. Not only that, even more than he had before, even greater honor than before. And what God could do for this egocentristic narcissist, he would do for any of us. He wants to do it for any of us. It's the same thing, the same God. Now, many of us, or many of you, learn from the mistakes of others. There are people like me who have to be the others and don't learn from mistakes of others. When I talked to CJ about what I was going to preach about, what journey, um, I gave him a couple of choices and, and he picked this one. And I was really glad he did because I have been studying King Nebuchadnezzar since 1973 when I was taking Old Testament at Baylor University. I didn't do well, and I wasn't a good guy. I had a lot of troubles, and I was living about as far away from God as you could get. So when, I, when it came time for the test, I called in sick. And then I was given the test when I was, quote, unquote, well, in a room by myself, nobody watching, where I could cheat to get my A. Now, cheating on a Bible test. Now, does, I mean, how bad can a person get? Well, good grade. Just a few weeks after that, my parents enrolled me in a Bible class that was in town. And since they paid for me, I went. Last thing I wanted to do. But it changed everything in my life. And one of the things it did is it gave me instruction on how to go make things right with every person I had wronged. Not easy to do, but I did it. 
And for the first time, I could look people in the eye. And part of making it right was setting an appointment with this Old Testament professor and telling him what I had done, cheated on a Bible test. So he let me take it over in a room by myself. And I didn't cheat. And I made a C that I was very, very proud of. Um, if God could restore a guy that's cheating on Bible tests, he could restore you. It's really the path that's brought me here and allowed me to do things because God is a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And many of us, we're living in condemnation, and God wants us to live in freedom, not to just have freedom to do anything we want to do, but the freedom to live into the calling that he has for us. One final bonus stop. I'll give you the last one, and it's in Jeremiah 6.16 where it says to stop at the crossroads and look around. Search for the old godly path and walk in its steps, and you will find rest for your soul. Maybe that's where the message does intersect field of dreams because Kevin's farm in the movie was about to, well, he's going to have to sell it. And James Earl Jones in that amazing voice was telling him not to. He said, Kevin, there, he didn't say Kevin. Uh, he said, character of Kevin. Um, <laughs> they're going to come here. They don't even know why. And they're going to hand you their money because it's money they have. It's peace they lack. If we are lacking peace, Jesus is the prince of peace. And he wants us to have that peace. And we just stumble all over ourselves and never experience it. In Daniel 4:35, this king finally makes this amazing proclamation, you know, that God is the God that you that just knows everything, can do everything. It's not his uh, magicians, it's not anything, but God, he makes it in his restored proclamation about God. Now, every person has a choice that they can make every day. And, you know, school is about to start. And for students, what a great time to decide, I am going to let God transform me into the best version of myself by not listening to the foolish sounds of foolish people, but believing and living into God's truth. And for us parents, we trust God that our children will make it at school without having three breakfasts, four lunches, 13 snacks during the day that they get at home. They'll be okay. We have to believe that. But oh my goodness, what a great thing when a student decides this is going to be the best version of me. Most people know the two hardest things for any person to say. First, 
Wor- Worcestershire sauce. Uh, uh, I don't even know how to say it. Wor- Worcestershire sauce. That's the first thing. And the second thing is I need help. That's hard. But no person is ever stronger than when they can say without God, I have an extreme limitation. And only God can help me with it. Proverbs 14, 12 says, Before every person there is a wide and pleasant road that seems so right, but always ends in death and destruction. If you're on that path, God's saying, Come on, I'm here. I love you. I want you. Let's do this together. It's waiting for you. There's an old Jewish proverb. It says, The choice to do nothing today is the most accurate predictor of tomorrow. And it really is. Everybody makes a choice. And to not make a choice is a choice. I love preaching in front of this. It looks like West Texas, where I came from. And um, West Texas, we had a proverb. If the horse is dead, get off. I don't know many people that uh, don't understand what that means. You can ride a dead horse, beat a dead horse, whatever you want to do, but just get off of whatever isn't leading you to peace and rest and fulfillment and right back to the calling that God has on your life. Fulfillment is living into that calling. 